We are continuing with our mini-series on sin, righteousness, and judgment. As I mentioned last week, uh, this sermon title, Sin, Righteousness, and Judgment, is based on John 16, verse 8, and it is to remind us of the convicting work of the Holy Spirit that is implicit in every passage that deals with these topics of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so this title reminds us to rely on the Holy Spirit for wisdom to understand these gospel truths and to ask the Holy Spirit for power to live out these gospel truths. So with that in mind, let's read Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 16 as part 2 of our mini-series. Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience? not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. And I want you to just note that the statement, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, has to do with has to do with the sequence of God's revelation and God's judgment, not his preference or superiority, which is why the next statement is, for God does not show favoritism. It's not favoritism to the Jews and favoritism to these folks. He's saying, first to the Jew, then to the Gentiles, but equally for all. God is at work. No favoritism. Continuing to read in verse 12, all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Last week, I stated that we can understand sin, righteousness, and judgment only if we first understand that all human beings were created by God in his image to live in union with him for eternity. 
Sin, righteousness, and judgment became relevant for humanity only because humanity chose not to live according to the image of God. God intended for humanity to connect with him, to be rightly related to him, to find meaning and sufficiency in him, and to meaningfully reflect him, to live according to his standard and to represent his attributes and nature. Sin happens when humanity desires to go their own way, to willfully disconnect from God, and to deliberately choose not to reflect God. Consequently, the wrath of God is when God gives humanity up. He gives them over to their own desires, to their sinful desires. More precisely, as we saw last week, he gives them over to their over-desires. So based on that understanding of sin and wrath, this morning I want to consider three points about judgment. And the first point about judgment is this. When we judge others, we condemn ourselves. When you finished reading Romans chapter 1, if you thought to yourself, I'm so glad that I'm not like those sinners referenced in Romans 1. Then Romans 2 opens with this stark reminder. You, therefore, because you just read that list and therefore you came to this conclusion. Therefore, you, you have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Pretty hard word. And here's the harsh reality about our tendency to judge. We tend to be far quicker and harsher in our criticism of others than of ourselves. We find all kinds of excuses for our own sin. We were tired. I was just tired. They just, you know, I was tired. I just said something. Uh, we were provoked. You don't know what they did to me. We were deceived. I had no idea. The devil just deceived me. Right? And, and by the way, the devil does deceive you. But you know, we're very quick to find these reasons. Right? We were deceived. Or it was, it was not that bad. It was just a lesser evil. And so we are prone to excuse all the stuff in ourselves, but we're very quick to find it in somebody else. You know, if you're a parent, you know your sin looks so much worse when it comes out of your child, doesn't it? You know, I mean, it's like, you know, you get angry and your child gets angry. Whoa, what is this? Where did you get this from? You know, it looks far worse in our children than it looks in us, right? We find it easy to criticize. We find it easy to be harsh with somebody else, to judge. We find all sorts of excuses for our sin. But as far as others are concerned, we're not kind, we're not patient, we're not praying for their repentance and their restoration. We judge. Ironically, there's a connection between our harsh judgment of others and righteousness, but it isn't a godly connection. In his book, The Message of Romans, John Stott puts it like this, 
we work ourselves up into a self, into a state. We work ourselves up into a state of self-righteous indignation over the disgraceful behavior of other people. While the same behavior seems not nearly so serious when it is ours rather than theirs. Our judgment of others is not connected to godly biblical righteousness. It is connected to self-righteousness. It's where we convince ourselves that our good, or at least better behavior than others, merits something. Our good, or compared to that sinner, I'm at least a little better than them. At least that merits some good, some right standing, some righteousness before God. And we say, I'm okay. I'm okay. They're not. In his Romans commentary, Tim Keller writes this, self-righteous religion is just as much a rejection of God and a misunderstanding of his character as the self-centered irreligion at the end of Romans 1. An atheist suppresses the truth about the existence and nature of God and uses God's gifts to indulge their own desires without giving glory or thanks to the giver. It is a presumptuous contempt for his kindness, for God's kindness. It is an attitude which scoffs at the idea of God's wrath, not recognizing its present reality, not realizing that the only reason its full and final arrival is held back is because the Lord is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That comes from 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. This is exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that we just read here. But he is speaking to a religious person. A self-righteous person will acknowledge the existence of God, but sees no need for him. They are doing well enough themselves. They are their own savior. Ultimately, they deserve glory for themselves. It is the attitude of the person who welcomes God's wrath on others, but thinks they themselves are entirely exempt. They see no need for repentance and have no realization that God is kindly holding back his judgment in order to give them an opportunity to turn to him in humility and for mercy. This too is a presumptuous contempt for his kindness. The irreligious person and the self-righteously religious person both show contempt for God's kindness. When we are harshly judgmental of others because of our own self-righteousness, it's not just that we're taking the place of God, who is the only true judge in their lives. It's not only that we haven't extended to them the kindness we ourselves received from God. It's not just that we are being hypocritical in that we're committing the same sins and then judging others. When we judge others, it is a rejection of God. 
when we judge others, God doesn't even have to judge us. We essentially judge ourselves. And so, let's consider how God judges us. Because when God judges us, our words bear witness. In Romans chapter 2, verse 6, we just read that God will repay or judge each person according to what they have done. And when Paul writes that, he's actually quoting from Psalm 62. And when you read Psalm 62, it speaks about lying and speaking and the words that we would express. And verses 1 to 3 here in Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 2, pardon me, verses 1 to 3 make it very clear that God judges in righteousness according to that legal standard of justice, according to the right standard of justice, and he judges in truth. What truth? What is this truth that God is judging with or in? Clearly, it is the truth of the word of God. It is the truth that he has communicated, the truth that has been given to us. It is the very fact that we are judged according to what Christ himself represents when Jesus says, I am the way, the life, and the truth. And so God is able to say to us, this is the truth, this is the standard, this is the image, this is the way in which I will look at you and evaluate what's going on in your life. But we also must understand that there is a truth of God that he judges us in that involves our words. Theologian Francis Schaeffer points out, there is another truth that God will use to judge us, our own words. Just as one of the ways of understanding God's wrath is understanding that he lets us have what we want, one of the ways to understand God's judgment is that we are judged by having to give account for our own words, our own standards, our own judgments. So God's not saying, let me judge you. He's saying, let me hear you. And your own words, your own standard, your own judgment now stands to condemn you, to judge you. This is why Jesus, in Matthew chapter 12, verses 36 to 37, when he's speaking to the people and he's talking about all that is to come and everything else that's going on, he says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Now, words matter. What we say, say matters. How we speak it matters. And as I was preparing this message, I was thinking, oh, more than 50 years, how many words have I spoken that I should not have spoken? From that very first no to my parents, and you know, those of you with very young children, you already know this. You don't have to teach that child to say no, right? From that very first no, all the way through all these 50 plus years, right? So many words that when I stand before the Lord, 
You know, Francis Schaeffer actually said it's like you have this uh, tape recorder around your neck, an invisible tape recorder around your neck. Now, he was dating himself. This is dated, right? He was writing in the time of tape recorders. I can't refer to tape recorders now. If you have an MP3 player, if you have some sort of smart device around your neck or in your pocket, invisible, but it's recording all your words. When you get to heaven and you stand before the Lord to be judged, he doesn't have to start with a list. He simply plays it back. And will your own words convict you? Will your own words say guilty? That's the question. And the thing that Paul is pointing out and what he's saying is that when God judges, he judges on, on the basis of our own words, our own standards. When we judge others, when we bring our words to bear in this way. And so when God judges, our words bear witness. But when God judges us, our conscience also bears witness. He says, God knows the secrets of our hearts, our secret thoughts. And based on those secret thoughts, whether they're the thoughts of an unbeliever or a believer, of one who does not know the law of God or one who does. All human beings are without excuse because the requirements of the law are written on our hearts and our conscience, our consciences bear witness. Our conscience convicts us. There is this, this unrest within us that says, ah, 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 this is not good, this is not right. You're speaking, and in the middle of that sentence of, oh, as it's coming out of your mouth, you know, oh, I shouldn't be saying this. And your conscience, the conviction of the Holy Spirit for all people working in these ways, there's that inward sense of right and wrong that causes human beings, all human beings, to frequently approve of and adhere to moral standards that actually align, at least in part, to the moral standards of God. So you see somebody doing something good or something right, and you say, you know, that looks familiar, or that is similar to what the Word says. Yes, it's because the conscience in human beings is trying, is pushing, is prompting, is saying, ah, Go to the right, go to the good, go to the light. Move away from the darkness. And the conscience is pricking. And so even the worst of sinners, even that person that you've put on your list and said, this person, absolute worst, there was a conscience that was in effect in there. Now the Bible does say that we can sear our conscience by our continued disobedience by our continued persistence in sin, we can sear our conscience. And to sear is to burn, is to burn in such a way that the nerves are damaged so that you can't feel. Well, on a seared surface, all right, when your flesh is seared, wherever you are seared, if you bring a pin and poke there, you won't feel it because the nerves have been damaged. And the Bible says that we can sear our conscience in such a way that now we don't feel this. We don't feel that we're doing something wrong. We don't feel the conviction. We don't feel the pain of it. We don't try to, ah, we don't, we don't recoil from it. But when we do 
have the conscience working. The conscience is paying attention or the conscience is awakened by the very Spirit of the Lord. You've got to remember that even the conscience is not, it's, it's still a very poor substitute for the convicting and transforming work of the Holy Spirit. The common grace of God that is manifest in our conscience is ultimately meant to point us to Jesus. It's not to leave us in our, to ourselves and in, to our conscience. It is to get us to Jesus so that there can be a true cleansing work of the Lord Jesus in us. Our consciences, our conflicting thoughts of right and wrong show us it reveals to us that we cannot keep the law. We cannot be good enough. We can't be righteous. We can't make it all work. So our consciences awaken enough to be able to point us to that, but it gets us to where we say, we need a Savior. We need a Savior. We need Jesus. Now in just a few chapters, we're right now in Romans chapter 1, in just a few chapters in Romans chapter 9, verse 1, Paul refers to his, his conscience, and he says that his conscience confirms by testifying in the Holy Spirit that what he's speaking is true. And then in Acts 24, 16, we read this just a few weeks ago, when standing before Felix, Paul says, because he has this expectant hope of the resurrection from the dead, he's looking forward to that. He says, I strive, because I know that I'm going to be resurrected in Christ Jesus, because I know that the Lord will come back for me, because I'm living a life that is holy and pleasing to him, because I'm awaiting his return to be joined with him, to be found worthy, to be found ready to be joined with him. I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. In Acts chapter 23, verse 1, just as Paul is standing before the Sanhedrin, he boldly says to them, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, Paul states, For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. He's got a clear conscience. This is the same man who was persecuting and killing Christians. How do you go from there to having a clear conscience and saying, I strive for this, I'm confident in this, I declare to you that I, my conscience is good. How do you do that? Only as you come to the Lord Jesus. Only as you walk in him. Not that you will never sin, but when you sin, you're quick to repent. And so, if you haven't caught this already, what I'm trying to point out, last week I was saying that, you know, when we think of God's wrath, don't start with, oh, how is he going to punish me? What will he punish me with? Is it, uh, you know, is it this kind of punishment or that kind of punishment? Is it big or small? Maybe I can get away. Don't start with that. Start with, is God's wrath being revealed because you have said, this is what I want, and God has let you go. And God's wrath is simply the fact that you're facing the consequence of removing yourself from the presence of God, from the, under the protection of God. You said, this is what I want, and you pursued it, 
and you face the consequence. In a very similar way, this week, what I'm trying to get across and what I want for us to think about is this. When we face God's judgment, don't try to come up with all sorts of methods or the, the criteria. And if I only know what the criteria and evaluation criteria are for my judgment when I stand before him, I'll try to address those things. God is saying, before he can come up or, or tell you what he will judge you by and what he will hold you to, you are actually judging yourself. So even these points that I'm making here of God judging us by our words and God judging us because of our conscience or our conscience bearing, us, bearing witness, this is not where God is doing something. You know, where, or pardon me, where, where God is, is setting some standard. He's saying, I'm looking at you. I'm listening to your words. I'm, listening to, I'm looking at whether the conscience was convicting, was, was, was coming up within you, and whether you responded to that. And if you ignored all of that, you seared your conscience, you did not, you gave free reign to your mouth, you just said whatever you wanted to, right? If you did all of that, then it is by those very same things that you are standing convicted. And so pay attention to that. Which means, and this is where I want to make sure that we spend a little bit of time this morning, we respond and apply to what we have heard, what we learn, what we read in Romans 2, by having our mouths and our consciences cleaned, cleansed. We respond by saying, Lord, I need a deep cleaning. I need some cleansing. Uh, I'm not sure how many of you have heard the expression, stereotypically from an exasperated parent to their child who is running off their mouth. If you don't stop talking right now, I'm going to wash your mouth out with soap. You've heard that expression? Some of you younger ones haven't heard this expression. Now, if you don't stop talking now, I'm going to wash your mouth out with soap. Clearly, soap in the mouth was not to get rid of dirt in the heart. There was nothing on the tongue that needed to be scrubbed out. There was something in the heart. And clearly, soap was not going to get that out. But the idea was, did that unpleasant taste in your mouth and the cleansing nature of soap, soap was used to clean, soap is, is used to clean, and the cleansing nature of that, that would remind you that what came out of your mouth from the abundance of your heart needed to be clean. And so if you got your mouth washed out with soap, how many, anybody here? One, two, okay. At least three, okay. All right. If you got your mouth washed out with soap, you know you don't want to do that again. You don't want to have that happen again. Right? And so it, it is a reminder. It is a conviction. It is something that comes to us to say, oh, I got to be thinking about this. I got to be paying attention to this. And you know, when you think about your conscience, there is no washing out, of so with, uh, washing out with soap in your mouth that can remind you of the conscience as effectively. The only effective cleansing agent for a troubled conscience is the blood of Jesus and the living water of the Word of God. Those in the world that may be affected in their conscience, you know, the very frustrating thing for them 
They feel that. They know they're doing something wrong. They don't know what to do with it. They don't know where to go. They don't know how to get clean, how to get rid of this. How do I, uh, how do I, how do I deal with this? I'm, I feel yucky on the inside. What do I do? And they don't know what to do with it. That's what we're pointing people to Jesus for. We're saying, hey, you need a cleansing. You need a scrubbing. You need a cleaning out with soap here. And you know what that is? It's the blood of Jesus. It's the living water of the word of God. It needs to be poured on you. It needs to get in you. It needs to come out of you. You need a thorough scrubbing of this kind. And when that happens, the Bible says that his blood and his word are able to wash our hearts and make them as white as stone. Oh, isn't that a truth that we want to hold on to? Isn't that a truth that we want to live out? We need the cleansing power of God at work in our lives right now. Our past has to be redeemed. Our present has to be empowered so that we can do these things that the Lord is calling us to. And our future has to be ensured. We have to be confident about the future. We will not fall away. We are in his hand. We will have the strength to deal with this. And even if, even if there's an unkind word on my tongue, even if there's a word of anger that I speak, even if there is something of that kind, I know what the Lord will do for me. So we need our past redeemed. We need our present empowered. And we need our future ensured. And nothing else but the blood of Jesus can do this for us. So we come to him and we say, Oh Lord God, cleanse me. Renew me. This week, as a point of application, I challenge you, pay attention to what comes out of your mouth. We've talked about this in the past. We've talked about the tongue. We've talked about words. We've talked about you know, things that we would speak. But every single time we come into another portion of Scripture, by the way, the Scripture is very redundant, isn't it? It says the same thing again and again and again. It repeats itself, doesn't it? So when you hear somebody preaching and you say, I've heard this before. Hey, they're just preaching the word. The word keeps repeating itself. And when it repeats itself, we need to pay attention. Because it doesn't repeat itself for no reason. There are some things that may show up once and never again re referenced. But there are some things that show up multiple times. Pay attention to that. One of those areas is where we would pay attention to our words. We would say to the Lord, Lord God, you cleanse me. You put a guard on my tongue. You tame my tongue. When James says, you know, no man can tame the tongue. And then immediately talks about submitting our tongues to the Lord. The implication is, you can't tame your tongue, but the Holy Spirit can. The Holy Spirit can. And so we need to come to him and to say, oh Lord God, I need to be cleansed in you. I need to be set free in you. I need to be delivered in you. And Lord, it is so easy for me to speak a word of harsh judgment, criticism, negative words, discouraging words. It's so easy for me to do that. Oh Lord God, you instead fill my heart and fill my mouth with encouraging words, with positive words, with the right things to be able to build up my brother and my sister for the benefit of those who listen, for the benefit of the hearer, according to their needs. That's what Ephesians 4.29 says that we would speak in those ways according to their needs. 
Oh, Lord God, you do this in me. And oh, God, forgive me. Cleanse me from all this stuff. Maybe it's five years. Maybe it's ten years. Maybe it's 50 years. Maybe it's more than that, that I have spoken inappropriately. Let me not be judged by these words. Clear my record. Take my rap sheet and rip it up, Lord. Cleanse me. Let me come to you in repentance and in asking you for forgiveness so that I may be set free. I want to encourage you this week. Even as you're paying attention to this, you're thinking of this, you're asking the Lord for this, that you would also pay attention to your conscience. What area in your life is the Spirit just nagging you about? You know. You know. And it's not the same for each person. What, what the Lord speaks to one person is not what the Lord speaks to, to me. I know what areas in my life the Holy Spirit is just like, ah. And, you know, and it's there. And the Holy Spirit just keeps coming at it. And I can choose to sear my conscience or I can choose to have a clear conscience. As Paul says, I'm confident. I strive to keep my conscience clear. I have a good conscience before men. I have, no, I have nothing in which I'm saying, oh, 99% of my life is okay, but this one area, uh, you know, I have a clear conscience. Do I sin? Yes. But do I have a clear conscience? Yes. That's the confidence that we need to have. That we would stand before the Lord, that we would stand before men. That you could stand before your spouse and say, I have a clear conscience. Would they believe you? Would they? I mean, that's the test, right? That you would be able to do that with those that know you well. And you would be able to say, I have a clear conscience. I'm confident. I'm striving to have that clear conscience. I pray that the word will convict. I pray that the word would do its work. But I pray that this morning, you would take to heart this, this truth about judgment. Don't, don't, don't wait for... You know, is it the big white throne judgment? Is it the second judgment? Is it the first judgment? What are all believers judged? What kind of judgment? Don't wait for all of that. There's plenty we can discuss about all of that. But you just ask the Lord and you say, Lord, let me not be judged by my own words. Let me not be judged by my own thoughts. Let me not be judged by my own actions. Help me, Lord. Help me to live in such a way that I do not have to be afraid of judgment. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that your word is rich and powerful and meaningful and relevant for our lives. Thousands of, li thousands of years after it has been written, it is speaking to us and affecting us right where we are. It's affecting me. It speaks to me. It convicts me. And I pray, Father, that this week we will pay attention to this word and we will say, Lord God, Lord God, we do not want to fall into judgment and we don't want to condemn ourselves and we don't want to, Lord, be accusing ourselves by our own words. Instead, Lord, we want to be clear before you. We want to be cleansed. We want to be clean. We want to be in, well, Lord, have life in you. Jesus. You come, and you do your work in us. Lord, this week, 
you do your work in us. This week, you transform our hearts. This week, Lord, you cause us to repent. This week, you enable us, Lord, to live according to your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.